Chapter Eight, Part One of After the Divorce by Grazia Deleda, translated by Maria Horner Lansdale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Denham. One morning, about three years after his conviction, Constantino awoke in a bad humour. The heat was oppressive and the air of the cell was heavy and sickening. One of the prisoners was snoring and puffing like a kettle letting off steam. Constantino had slept with Giovanna's last letter beneath his head, and a sad little letter it was, short and depressing in the extreme. She told of her and her mother's dire poverty, and of the boy's serious illness. It never occurred to Constantino to reflect how cruel it was to write to him in this strain. He wanted to know the truth about them, however bad it might be, and he felt that to share all Giovanna's sorrows and to agonize over his inability to help her was a part of his duty. A barren duty, alas, merely an increase of his misery. He had become quite deft at his trade of shoemaking, and worked rapidly, but he could make very little money. All that was left, however, after the King of Spades had been paid for his supposed good offices, he sent to Giovanna. "'Upon my word,' said the ex-marshal, "'you are a goose. Spend it on yourself. They ought to be sending you money. But they are so poor.' Poor? Not they. Haven't they got the sun? What more do they want? said the other. If you would only eat and drink more, it would be a real charity. You are nothing but a stick, my dear fellow. Look at me, I'm getting fat. My bacon may be all rind, but all the same, I'm getting fat. He was, in fact, as round as a ball, but his flesh hung down in yellow, flabby rolls. Constantino, on the other hand, had fallen away. His eyes were big and cavernous, and his hands transparent. The sun, he thought to himself bitterly. Yes, they have indeed got that. But what good is the sun, even, when one has nothing to eat, and is suffering every kind of privation? He was, no doubt, a great simpleton, but as he thought of these things, he sometimes cried like a child. Yet all the time he never gave up hope. The years passed by, day followed day, slowly, regularly, uneventfully, like drops of water in a grotto, dripping from stone to stone. Almost every convict in the prison, especially those whose terms were not very long, hoped for a remission, and kept close count of the days already elapsed, and of those yet to come. Their accuracy was amazing. They never made a mistake of so much as a single day. Some even carried their calculations so far as to count the hours. Constantino thought it all very foolish. One might die in the meantime, or regain his liberty. It was all in the hands of God. Yet all the same, he too counted on being freed before the appointed hour, only in his case 
the appointed hour was so desperately, so hopelessly far away. This realization was heavy upon him on that morning when he awoke and fingered the warm paper of Giovanna's last letter. Getting up, he sighed heavily, and began to dress himself. The man on his right stopped snoring, opened one sleepy eye, regarded Constantino dully, then closed it again. "'Feeling badly?' he asked, as Constantino sighed again. "'Oh, yes, your child is ill. Why don't you tell the director?' "'Why should I tell the director? He would clap me into a cell for receiving the letter, and that would be the whole of it.' "'Except pane e polastra, bread and water,' said an ironical voice. There was a general laugh, and Constantino, realising bitterly the utter indifference of all those men among whom he was destined to pass his days, felt as though he were wandering alone in a burning desert, gasping for air and water. He went to his work longing impatiently for the exercise hour, when he would be able to talk over his troubles with the King of Spades. The great, fat, yellow man whom he despised so in his heart was nevertheless indispensable to him, his sole comfort, in fact. He alone in that place understood him, was sorry for him, and listened to him. He was paid for it all, to be sure, but what did that signify? He was necessary in the same way to a great many of the convicts, but to none probably as much as to Constantino, who already, with a somewhat selfish regret, was dreading the time when his term expired, the King of Spades would finally depart. On this particular day, a new inmate made his appearance in the workroom. He was a northerner, long and sinuous, with a grey, wrinkled face and small, pale eyes. It was not easy to tell his age, but the men laughed when he announced himself as twenty-two. He began at once to complain of the heat and of the sickening smell of fish that filled the room. Ah, he was no cobbler, no indeed, he was the only son of a wealthy wholesale shoe-dealer, a gentleman in fact, and thereupon he recounted his unfortunate history. He had, it appeared, been so unlucky as to kill a rival in love. There had been provocation, and he had ripped him open in the back. Simply that. The woman who was the real cause of the crime had consumption, and now she was dying from grief. Dying! Simply that. Moreover, there was a child in the question, a son of the prisoners by the sick woman. If she died— the boy would be left orphaned and abandoned. Constantino trembled at this, not indeed that the man's story affected him particularly, but because the picture of the woman and the child reminded him of Giovanna and the sick Maltineddu. The newcomer, who was cutting a pair of soles with considerable skill, now became silent, and bent over, Intent upon his work, his underlip trembling like that of a child about to cry. 
Constantino, watching him, reflected that though he knew that this man must be suffering intensely, he felt as indifferent as did any of the others. He too, then, had lost the power of sympathising with the sorrows of others. The thought filled him with dismay, and made him more insanely anxious to get out than ever. That day, as soon as he saw the King of Spades, he drew him over to a corner where the sun-baked wall cast a little spot of shade, but when he had got him there he could not bring himself to begin on his own troubles. Instead, he repeated the story told by the new arrival. The other shrugged his shoulders and spat against the wall. "'If he wants to, even he can write,' he said. "'But I should advise prudence. Someone is nosing about.' "'How are we ever going to manage after you have gone?' said Constantino thoughtfully. "'You would like to keep me here forever, you rascal,' demanded the other in a rallying tone. "'Heaven forbid! No, indeed! I only wish you might get out to-morrow!' The King of Spades sighed. His enemies, he declared, were forever devising new and diabolical schemes for keeping him out of the way. He had abandoned all hope now of a pardon. In any case, however, his term would expire before long. Then he would go at once to the king and lay a plain statement of the facts before him. The king would order an instant reversal of the verdict, and he himself, his innocence finally established, would be restored to his post. Who could tell? There might even be another medal conferred to keep the rest company. But his first care would be to obtain pardons for all his friends, especially for Constantino. "'That would be a noble work,' he observed self-approvingly. Indeed, by virtue of making such assurances frequently, he had come actually to believe in them himself. "'Tomorrow? Yes, indeed, a pardon might very possibly come tomorrow, and a good thing that would be for everyone.' "'Good or bad?' said Constantino despondently. "'After all,' continued the other, "'when I am gone, it may be that you will no longer have any use for my services.' The moment the words were out of his mouth he regretted having spoken, but seeing that Constantino merely shook his head, evidently supposing that he alluded to a possible pardon, he regarded him compassionately. "'Are you really and truly innocent?' he asked. By this time I should think you would be willing to talk to me quite openly. Do you remember that first time when I asked you? You said, "'May I never see my child again if I am guilty.' "'Yes, so I did. And now you mean to say I am perhaps not going to see him again? Well, God's will be done, but I am innocent all the same.' The King of Spades turned and again spat upon the wall. "'Patience, old fellow, patience, patience,' he said, and there was a note of real warmth and feeling in his tone. 
He felt, in fact, quite proud of himself for recognising and esteeming honesty when he saw it in others, and it was this taste that drew him to Constantino. He saw with wonder that his fellow-countryman was so good, that his soul was so pure, and his whole nature formed of so fine a material, that even the boundless corruption of prison life could not sully him. Now it happened that the ex-marshal allowed himself, as one of the privileges of his position of go-between, to read the letters that passed through his hands. Not long before, an anonymous letter had come for Constantino, written in a villainous hand, with great sprawling characters that looked like insects crawling over the page. Venomous creatures they proved indeed to be, and capable of inflicting wounds as deadly as those of any living reptile. In short, the letter announced that Giovanna, wife of the prisoner, was permitting Brontu de Jas to pay court to her, and that Aunt Bacissia was about to go to Nuoro to consult a lawyer about applying for a divorce for her daughter. On reading this precious communication, the ex-marshal became furious. His friend, the delegate, immersed as he was in his great scientific researches, heard him snorting and puffing out his fat yellow cheeks. "'Idiots! Fools! Sardinian asses!' he spluttered. "'Why on earth tell him about it at all? What can he do except batter out his brains against the wall?' He did not deliver the letter, and every time he saw his friend he regarded him compassionately, feeling at the same time pleased at his own goodness of heart for caring so much. Three days later the boy died. Constantino was notified immediately of the event. He wept silently and by stealth, trying hard to bear up with fortitude before his companions. When Arnolfo Bellini, the man whose mistress was dying, heard of the Sardinian's misfortune, he fell into a fit of nervous weeping, emitting curious noises like an angry hen, his grey old young face doubling up in such grotesque contortions that one of the quarrelsome brothers from the Abruzzi burst out laughing. One of the others leaned across and punched him in the leg with an awl, whereupon the Abruzzesi started, ceased coughing, and continued his work without protest. Constantino, after staring a moment at Bellini in amazement, shook his head and turned to his bench. Silence reigned, and presently the man calmed down. The low room was filled with the hot, reflected glare from the courtyard, and the overpowering heat drew a sickening odour from the leather and the perspiring hands and feet of the convicts. There were thirteen of them under the surveillance of a tall, red-moustached guard, who never opened his lips. The uniformity of dress, the close-cropped heads and shaven faces, and the general vacuity of expression, lent them all a certain mutual resemblance. They might have been brothers, or at least nearly related to one another, and yet 
never more than on that particular day had Constantino felt himself so utterly apart, so wholly out of sympathy with his companions in misery. He stitched and stitched, bending over the shoe which rested between his knees in the hollow of his leather apron. From time to time he would pause, examine his work attentively, then go on again, drawing the thread through with both hands with a jerk that seemed almost angry. Yes, one must work, now that the boy was dead. Had he loved him very dearly? Well, he could hardly say, perhaps not so very much. He had only seen him once during that time at Nuoro, through the iron grating of the reception-room, held fast in the arms of his weeping mother. The baby, he remembered, had a little pink face, somewhat rough and scarred like certain kinds of apricots when they are ripe. His round, violet-coloured eyes shone like a pair of grape-seeds from beneath their long fringe of lashes. He had cried the whole time, terrified at the sight of the stern-faced, rigid guards, and grasping the iron bars convulsively with his little red hands. This was the only memory Constantino had preserved of his son. Years had gone by since then, yet he always imagined him flushed, tearful, with little violet eyes shining out from beneath the dark lashes. But he often pictured the future, when Malthinedu, grown to be big and strong, would drive the wagon, and ride the horse, and sow, and reap, and be the comfort and support of his mother. The prisoner constantly hoped that some day or other he would be cleared, and able to return to his home, but when at times this hope seemed to be more than usually vain, then his thoughts would instantly revert to the boy, and how he would be able to take his place in a way. Thus his feeling for him was more a part of his love for Giovanna than that more selfish affection which is the result often of habit and propinquity. Now the boy was dead, and the dream shattered. The will of God be done. And Constantino, dwelling upon Giovanna's grief, suffered himself acutely. When the King of Spades accordingly met his friend that day in the shadow of the sun-baked wall, he at once perceived that the other's grief was far more for his wife than for the loss of the child. Nevertheless, his method of imparting comfort was to say banteringly, "'Why, my dear fellow, if, as you say, the Lord has taken the little innocent soul back to himself, why do you take it so much to heart? It must be for his own good.' "'Why must it?' said Constantino, his head drooping, and both arms hanging down with limp, open palms. "'Why must he be better off, simply because he was poor?' The king of spades happened to be in a philosophizing mood. He explained, therefore, that poverty was not always a misfortune, nothing of the sort. It might at times be looked upon as a blessing.' even an unqualified one. "'There are many worse things than poverty,' said he. "'Reflect for a moment. Your wife will become reconciled.' "'Oh, of course, she has the son,' 
said Constantino, clenching his hands. This burning sun, and just how is it going to help her? Poof, 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 puffed the other, inflating his big yellow cheeks. Then he grew thoughtful, and fell to examining the little finger of his right hand with minute attention. Suppose, he said suddenly, your wife were to marry again? Constantino did not quite take in what he meant, but his arm stiffened instinctively. I, I hardly should have thought, said he in a hurt tone, that you would say such a thing as that. Poof, poof, poof. The ex-marshal swelled and puffed meditatively. Then, after a short pause, he began again. But listen, my dear fellow, you don't understand. I don't for a moment mean to say that your wife is not a perfectly honest woman. What I do mean is, suppose she were actually to marry someone else. And still you don't understand. Upon my word, this Christian is extraordinarily slow at taking an idea. One would suppose you were free, you are so innocent. Perhaps, though, he added, you don't know that people can get divorces nowadays. Any woman whose husband has been sentenced for more than ten years can be divorced and marry someone else. Constantino threw his head up for a moment, and his sunken eyes opened round and wide, then the lids dropped again. Giovanna would never do it, he said simply. There was another brief interval of silence. Giovanna would not do it, he repeated. Yet even as he pronounced the words, he had a strange sensation as though a frozen steel were slashing his heart in twain. One part was convulsed with agony, while the other shrieked again and again. She would never do it! She would never do it! And neither part gave a single thought to the little dead child. She would not do it! She would not do it! reiterated one half of his heart with loud insistence, until at last the other was convinced, and they came together again, but only to find that both were now devoured by that torturing pain. See here, said the king of spades, I don't believe she would either, but tell me one thing. Now that the child is dead, and now that the mother has nothing more to hope for, from either him or you, would it not, after all, be the very best thing she could do, supposing she had the opportunity? For my own part, I think that if a chance came along for her to marry again, she would be very foolish not to take it. Brontu de Jas, said Constantino to himself, but he only repeated, No, she would not do it. But you are a Christian, my friend. If she were to do it, would she not be in the right? But I am going back some day. How is she to know that? Why, I have told her so all along, and I shall never cease telling her so. The king of spades had a strong inclination to laugh, but he restrained himself, feeling quite ashamed of the impulse. Presently he murmured, as though in answer to some inward question, "'It is all 
utter foolishness. "'Yes, of course,' said Constantino. "'But all the time he was thinking of Brontu de Jas, "'of his house with the portico, "'of his tankers and his flocks, "'and then of Giovanna's poverty. "'Alas, the knife was cutting deep into his heart now!' "'That very night he wrote a long letter to Giovanna, comforting her, and assuring her of his unshaken faith in the divine mercy. "'It may be,' he wrote in the simple goodness of his heart, "'that God wishes to prove us still further, and so has taken from us the offspring that we conceived in sin. May his will be done. But now a presentiment tells me that the hour of my restoration to liberty is at hand.' He considered long whether or no to tell her of the dreadful thing hinted at by the ex-marshal, and thought himself quite shrewd and cunning when he decided it would be better to let her think that he did not so much as know of the existence of that infernal law. His letter dispatched, he felt more tranquil, but a little worm had begun to gnaw and gnaw in his brain. The ex-marshal, moreover, from that day on, with a pity that was heartless in its operations, never ceased to instil the subtle poison into his veins. He must become accustomed to the idea, thought this diplomatist to himself, or else the poor simple soul will die of heartbreak. There were times, however, when he thought that it might be better, after all, to let him die and have done with it. Then, remembering all his promises about obtaining a pardon, he would pretend to himself that he was really going to do this, and continue the torture so that his victim might survive the shock when news of the divorce actually came. He had no doubt that his friend's wife was seriously contemplating the step and it made him angry to hear Constantino speak affectionately of her. "'My dear fellow,' said he one October day, puffing as usual, "'you don't know women. Empty jugs, that's what they are, nothing but empty jugs. I was once engaged to be married myself. You can hardly believe it? Well, I can hardly believe it either. What, then, nothing except that she betrayed me before I had even married her, and that you irritate me beyond measure. Here is your wife in an altogether different situation. She is young and poor, and has blood in her veins. She has blood in her veins, I suppose, hasn't she? Well, if this Dejas fellow wants her to marry him, I say she would be a great goose not to do it. Dejas? "'Why? What? Who told you?' stammered Constantino in amazement. "'Oh, d d didn't you tell me yourself?' Constantino thought he most certainly had not, but then his mind had been in such a confused state for some time back, but, merciful God, dear son Constantino, how had he ever come to do such a thing? What had made him utter that man's name?' "'Well, then,' he burst out, "'yes, I am afraid of him. "'He courted her before we were married. "'He wanted her himself. 
"'Ugh!' he said, "'drunkard, and as weak as mud. "'No, no, she could never do anything so horrible. "'For pity's sake, let's talk of something else.' "'So they did talk of something else, "'still in the Sardinian dialect, "'so as not to be understood by the other prisoners. "'They talked of the consumptive student "'who was drawing visibly nearer to the door of the other world, "'of Arnolfo Bellini.' who began to sob whenever his eye fell on the dying man, of the delegate whom they could see pacing back and forth by the fountain, of the magpie who was growing feeble and losing all his feathers from old age. Gossip, envy, hatred, identical interests, cowardice, raillery, fear, such were the bonds which united or kept apart the different members of the little community, prisoners, guards, and officials alike. To Constantino they were all equally objects of indifference, he, the delegate, and the student seeming to live apart in a little world of their own, with the ex-marshal, the pivot about which every detail in the prisoners' lives seemed to revolve, he, meanwhile, appearing to be as superior as he was necessary to them all. Many envied the friendly intercourse existing between Constantino and him, and frequently the former would be implored to use his influence with the King of Spades to procure some favour. He merely shrugged his shoulders on such occasions, though when they offered him money, as sometimes happened, he was sorely tempted to take it. So intense was his longing to be able to support Giovanna, he had no other idea. The King of Spades, with his eternal insinuations that cut like knives, was becoming more and more hateful to him. One day they actually quarrelled, and for some time did not speak to one another. But Constantino could not stand it. He felt as though he should suffocate, as though he had been shut up in a cell and cut off from all communication with the outer world. He soon apologised and begged for a reconciliation. The autumn drew on. The air grew cool, and the sky became a delicate, velvety blue, distant, unreal, dreamlike. Sometimes the breeze would waft a perfume of ripening fruit into the prison enclosure. Constantino was less acutely miserable but he had sunk into a state of settled melancholy. He grew thinner and thinner, and deprived himself continually of things which he stood in need of in order to have more money to send to Giovanna. The other prisoners all received presents of some sort from their friends and relatives. He alone denied himself even the little pittance he was able to earn. "'I don't understand it.' said the ex-marshal to him one day. "'Your complexion is pink, and you look younger than you did when you came, and yet you are almost transparent.' Sometimes Constantino would flush violently, and the blood would rush to his head. Then he would be utterly prostrated, and in his weakness he would suffer more from homesickness than he had done even in the first year of his imprisonment. He would see before him the boundless sweep of the uplands, sleeping in the autumnal haze, glowing and yellow beneath the crystal sky. 
he would get the breath of the vineyards, the scent of such late maturing fruits as flourish in that land of flocks and beehives. Images would rise before him of the foxes and hares, the wild birds and cattle, the hedges thick with blackberries, all the hundred and one natural objects which had constituted the sole element of enjoyment in his otherwise miserable and barren childhood. Then his thoughts would turn to his uncle, the cruel old vulture who, having tormented him in his lifetime, seemed able to torment him still. An impulse of bitter hatred would rise up in his heart, only to be repressed on remembering that he was dead, and succeeded by a prayer for the murdered man's soul. There was no one else whom he was even tempted to hate, no one at all, not even the real murderer, or Brontu de Jas, who, in fact, had as yet given him no cause for complaint, or the king of spades, though he subjected him to this continual martyrdom. Indeed, it hardly seemed as though he had sufficient strength effectually to hate any one. A feeling of gentle melancholy pervaded him, a sort of numbness like that of a person about to fall asleep. His only sensation was one of tender, pitiful, passionless love, as tranquil, as mild, and all-embracing as an autumnal sky, and for having its one object, Giovanna. She was a part of the love itself, and waking or sleeping, he thought only of her, only of her, only of her. As time went on, this love became more and more engrossing. She came to represent the far-off home, family, liberty, life itself. All, all was comprehended in her. Hope, faith, endurance, peace, the very love of life. She became his soul. When the inexorable king of spades threatened him with that horrible thing, he did not know it, but it was the death of his soul that he was holding over him. For the certainty of not losing Giovanna, Constantino would gladly have agreed to pass forty years in prison, and at the same time he panted for his freedom precisely in order that he might not lose her. End of chapter 8, part 1 Recording by Tom Denham.